Hello and welcome to Buffy and the Art of Story Season 6. If you love Buffy the Vampire Slayer and you love creating stories or just taking them apart to see how they work, you're at the right podcast. Today we're talking about Season 6, Episode 4, Flooded where Buffy's basement floods, she struggles over too many bills, and the trio sends a demon after her. I am Lisa M. Lilly, mystery and thriller author, story coach, and founder of writingasasecondcareer.com, where you can learn more about fiction writing, publishing, and book marketing. Along with a breakdown of Flooded, today I'll talk about the challenges of writing an intangible villain like debt or falling property values in a fantasy story or really any story. Buffy, Giles, and Willow and the differences between false conflict and character-based conflict. What works and doesn't with cartoony villains like the trio and intentional or not is slaying a metaphor for women's unpaid labor. As always, there'll be no spoilers except at the end when I'll talk about foreshadowing, but I'll give you plenty of warning. Okay, let's dive into the Hellmouth. Flooded aired the first time on October 16, 2001 and was directed by Doug Petrie and written by Jane Espenson and Doug Petrie. This is one of my least favorite episodes, yet as I broke it down for the podcast, I remembered how much there is to love in it. It starts with an opening conflict, as it should, to draw the viewers in, and in this case, to quickly orient the audience to where Buffy is at these days emotionally. Buffy stalks an unseen villain through a darkened basement, looks up, weapon in hand, but then she says, so... We meet at last, Mr. Drippy. It turns out the weapon is a bright red wrench that she uses to fix a leak in an overhead pipe. Dawn comes down the stairs as she's working and says she's got the number for a plumber, but Buffy insists she's on it. She keeps tightening and the leak stops. She looks thrilled for a second until there's a loud groan. Water bursts from the pipe's all over the basement. Dawn screams and runs, and Buffy just stands there, water spraying all around her and sighs and says, there, all better. Her expression is so defeated. That's at one minute, five seconds, and we go to credits. On return in a bright kitchen, Dawn shuts the basement door and asks how much water can fit in one set of pipes. And Tara says, as she understands it, the entire city water supply. Willow comments, it's like little clown cars in the circus. Through this, Buffy is staring at water coming out of the kitchen faucet. Tara suggests Dawn eat breakfast, and Buffy chimes in with platitudes about that and sounds like she's in a trance, which leads Willow to go turn off the water. Xander and Tito, his friend the plumber, come out of the basement. Xander says it looks like they should start gathering two of every animal down there. And Tito explains that they need a full copper repipe. The price on the estimate that he gives Willow is so high, Dawn thinks it's the phone number. But Sander says it's a good deal. And Buffy doesn't get what the issue is, they'll pay. 
And Willow says, Buffy, I know you're still getting back on your feet after, and Buffy says, lying flat on my back. So this is a little more Buffy-like compared to last episode, a little bit more humor, and we'll see some more of that with Buffy, despite how she is uh, still a bit flat and a bit out of it. And Willow says, yeah, but there are money things to talk about. At 3 minutes 49 seconds, Buffy sits on the couch in front of a pile of bills, and her friends explain that she's nearly broke. And Buffy says, quite reasonably, but I haven't spent any money. I was all dead and frugal. Which is one of my favorite Buffy lines ever. So already there's more that I love in this episode than I recalled. Willow says, I know this comes as a bit of a shock after a bit of a shock, but it took us by surprise too. Tara assures Buffy that her mother prepared well. She had life insurance, but the hospital bills used up all the money. And Anya explains that Buffy's still hemorrhaging money because the house just sitting there doing nothing costs money. Dawn asks what they do, and Buffy says, easy, we burn the house to the ground and collect the insurance. Plus, fire, pretty. They all stare at her and she tells them she's kidding. They'll deal with it and goes on. It's pieces of paper sent by bureaucrats we've never even met. It's not like it's the end of the world, which is too bad because that I'm really good at. Normally around here, we'd see the story spark or inciting incident for the episode, which usually happens by 10% through and sometimes much earlier, but rarely does it come later, because if you wait too long to start your story, the reader or the audience starts getting impatient or bored. With this episode, I don't see any one story spark, but I do think what sets it off is overall this uh, idea of Buffy coming back out of the grave and so soon facing a problem she really doesn't know how to handle. For all that slaying was uh, overwhelming to her. She talked with Spike about everything being violent in this world. It turns out that, in line with her comment, might be easier for her to get back to than these kinds of problems, which she didn't have to deal with before and doesn't know what to do about. And that does drive much of this episode, although there will be a demon plot too that starts much later. Dawn looks really worried and Buffy promises she'll take care of it. She just doesn't know how yet. At 5 minutes 37 seconds, Anya says she does. If Buffy wants to pay all the bills and start a college fund for Dawn, she should start charging for slaying. Xander looks distraught. The others are silent. And Buffy says, well, that's an idea you would have. Any other suggestions? On the one hand, this is kind of a fun little dig at angel though i'm not sure any of them know that he sometimes at least charges for his services and probably a little bit of joking about the other show by the writers but i also wonder is this a sort of metaphor for all the unpaid work that still predominantly women do and certainly at the time that buffy aired because Buffy does do a valuable service to the community. She saves people's lives, but she does not get paid. While the Watchers, who 
mainly are men. We've seen one or two women watchers, but the majority are men. They get paid. They don't face danger on the front lines. They aren't in there doing all the work, but they get paid. And the slayers, who are all female, don't. But I'm not sure if it's an intentional metaphor or not, because Anya is painted as mercenary and un caring, though that could be intentional as well. There's so much pressure on women to not expect their contributions of caring for others to be valued the same way that paid work is valued. Don tells Anya, you can't charge innocent people to save their lives. Anya says Spider-Man does. She and Don argue until Don appeals to Xander, and Xander finally says, action is his reward. Anya says, why don't you ever take my side and stalks out? In the front yard, the two argue. She's angry. He's not supportive. He says that he is and realizes fairly quickly that this fight is really about that he hasn't told his friends yet about the engagement. And Anya says, no, maybe, yes. It's it's painful and confusing. First you give me this beautiful ring and then I can't wear it in public. I mean, do you know how depressing that is? This is a terrific way to show character conflict and it's realistic because so often people argue about one thing but the issue issue is much deeper. And the fact that Anya starts by arguing about something else tells us for her specific character how hurt she is, how upset, and how deep that issue runs, and also how afraid she is to raise it because normally Anya does just come out and say things. And here it takes a bit for her to get that out on the table. This back and forth also shows us that the two of them understand each other pretty well and communicate pretty well. Xander picks up fairly quickly what the real fight's about, although you could say it would be hard for him to miss it after the previous episodes where Anya was very clear, but he does quickly shift to the real issue. And Anya articulates her feelings so well. She explains factually what happened. He gave her this ring. Now she can't wear it. And she talks about her feelings, how she feels. It's painful. It's confusing. It's depressing. I think Anya could give a class on how to communicate your feelings to your partner in a constructive way, at least as far as that line goes. Anya's line, also great exposition there very quickly that informs the audience if they don't know how it is that Anya and Xander got engaged. Xander assures her her waiting days are almost over, which made me think about Xander in The Replacement, the more suave Xander, who I'm pretty sure said something like that to Anya. And he knows it's frustrating, but marriage is a forever deal. And Anya says, not if you never get started. Don't you want to get married? Xander now tells her, yes, he does, but he's still getting used to the miracle of a steady paycheck and getting out of his parents' house. And he continues that the husband thing is a big step or a lot of small ones and says, and I love you so much. I just want every step to be just right. Anya's touched. She kisses him. Sweet music plays. But then she pulls away and says, hey, you tricked me just now with your fancy talk and your lips. She tells him he's been stalling. When is he going to grow up? And she walks off. 
At 8 minutes 51 seconds, the scene cuts to Buffy practicing acting like a grown-up because after a moment we realize part of this is in her head. But she sits at the bank, her hair is pulled back, she's wearing a pretty dress shirt and a skirt, and she practices saying things like, there's a first time for everything. Collateral? No problem. I'm a problem solver. In real life, she mutters to herself about her skirt as a balding man in a suit sits down and says, Carl Sabinski, loan officer. And Buffy says, Buffy Summers, loan applier for. She tells him she brought everything. He goes through the stack of papers setting aside what he doesn't need, like old report cards. And then he explains that there's a bit of a tangle financially. The house is her only collateral, but it's been losing value. And he adds that Sunnydale property values have never been comparable to other neighborhoods for some unknown reason. And that Buffy can't refinance because she has no job. We're almost a quarter way through the episode, and there is no plot so far that involves slang. It's all real-life problems. And there are some challenges in doing that in a fantasy show. In interviews, the writers said part of their goal for season six was life is the big bad, and this episode hits on that theme. And the challenge is, one, how much do you cover when you are dealing with mundane problems that uh, probably aren't what viewers turn into a fantasy show for? So here, I, I think that part is done pretty well. We have a very fast explanation from the loan officer about why having a house as collateral is not enough to get a refinance. Uh, For one thing, there's the value of the house and there's a nice reference there. He doesn't know why the values are low. We do because of all those demons and vampires. But also the idea that a home loan is really not a loan that you can get based just on the property because the banks don't really want the property. They want to know your income. Can you repay the loan? So that's done very quickly. I also think the issue of the bills is done reasonably well, but part of why I didn't love this episode the first time I saw it or on most rewatches is there is a lot of time on these household things like a flooded basement and bills. The other issue is that when you introduce mundane problems and make them the focus of the story, uh, as opposed to it being the context or a bit of background about the characters, it causes the audience to now start thinking realistic questions about those issues. So as I watched this, one question I had in my head, which maybe not everyone would have, but because my law practice deals a bit with insurance, I had trouble with Terry saying, well, the life insurance was used up by the hospital bills because generally, this is not legal advice, but generally life insurance goes to the beneficiary, not to the estate, and the beneficiary isn't usually responsible for um, the bills of someone who died, the hospital bills or other bills. 
Now, there could be a longer way around that the life insurance had to be used for that reason. So I can certainly headcanon that. But my point is it makes you start thinking about, well, couldn't Buffy do this or couldn't Buffy do that? I think the writers try to deal with that with her applying for the loan because it's one thing. Okay, maybe Buffy can use the equity in the house, but it triggers those other questions when what I want to be thinking about when I watch Buffy is a completely different kind of story. Now we do get a sort of one quarter twist. That's that first major plot turn that should come from outside the protagonist, spin the story in a new direction, and often raise the stakes. So here it does all those things, but there is an issue because the turn here is a demon breaking into the bank, and we haven't seen this demon before. So this is more of the inciting incident for the demon plot but it does keep the episode moving because it is a major spin in the story the demon breaks through a glass wall shards land on carl's desk the loan officer and buffy says no job i wish and we cut to a commercial on return buffy tells the demon with a little trademark humor that he's in the wrong line one is for deposits one's for withdrawals and this one is for getting kicked in the face but her quip and her kick fail because this long pencil skirt she's wearing keeps her from moving her legs very much the demon sends her flying across the room she lands on carl's desk and she grabs his letter opener to slit her skirt now she can fight which she does, but the demon still gets the better of her momentarily, carrying her across the room, and a security guard fires a shot at the demon while he's carrying Buffy. In the meantime, someone with black gloves empties all the bank teller's drawers. The demon throws Buffy at the guard. She takes his gun and says, these things never helpful. She flings the gun, which goes off. Buffy winces. She tries to get the demon again, but he's already run out. At 11 minutes, 35 seconds, Buffy heaves a big sigh, puts her hands on the desk in front of Carl and says, now about my loan. I'm not saying I'm charging you for saving your life or anything, but let's talk rates. At 11 minutes, 52 seconds, Buffy punches a punching bag in the training room behind the magic box and Willow says, he still turned you down? That's crazy. Willow rants about how unfair it is and she's excited when it hits her from Buffy's reactions that Buffy is mad. Buffy says it'll pass, but Willow says no, anger's good. It's a big, powerful emotion Buffy should feel. And Buffy says, well, that's good then. It's gone now. Willow tries to make Buffy angry again. She claims she slept with Riley, then admits it's a big fib to cover up the sleazy affair she had with Angel. This is kind of funny since these are things that Faith either did or Buffy feared she would do. But Buffy says, Will, what the hell are you doing? And Willow says, pissing you off? And Buffy responds, true. Why? Willow now stumbles a bit as she says since Buffy's been back, she hasn't been big with the whole range of human emotions. Buffy just looks at her blankly, so blankly that Willow backpedals and says it's her problem, forget she said anything, and she doesn't even need to finish that explanation because Buffy has already gone back to punching the bag. So this is another sign that while Buffy seemed a little more like herself, she's not, and that 
these household issues and concerns are wearing her down more because she seemed more animated earlier in the episode. At 13 minutes 53 seconds in the retail part of the magic box, Anya urges Xander to tell Tara the good news and calls him a chicken when he claims to want to wait for Buffy and Willow. He says if he tells everyone because Anya dared him, won't she always wonder if that's why? She reluctantly agrees on that point, and he says score one for Captain Logic, but Anya points out it's not Captain Logic steering the boat, it's Captain Fear. And then she says, God, I I hate this. This tone in my voice, I dislike it more than you do, and I'm closer to it. Tara and Dawn argue about whether Dawn is old enough to do research. Dawn says if they don't let her look at the picture, she'll learn everything about demons on the street. Tara finally gives her the book. Dawn looks at a drawing and says, that's a weird place for a horn. That's not a horn. Xander still doesn't get what kind of demon robs a bank, and Anya says the kind that wants money. Xander asks what you call that, and Dawn thinks she found it and says it's mmm fashionic, like mmm cookies. But Xander thinks maybe it's muh fashionic, like muh fashionic. Buffy and Willow enter, and Dawn shows them the drawing. Buffy says, You do research now? Want a cappuccino and a pack of cigarettes to go with? But she agrees that is the demon. She stops talking as Giles enters the magic box. I have one listener comment to share. This is from Roberta Lip, co-host of They Coined It, who also commented last time. And she said about Afterlife on Instagram, love this episode and all this business about the monster rules. The monster was so irritating, which clearly I agree with. If you want to also follow on Instagram, you can find me there at Lisa M. Lily, L-I-S-A, M as in Marie, L-I-L-L-Y. And if you find the breakdown of plot and story structure in the podcast helpful, you might also like my audiobooks on plotting and fiction writing. Look for Super Simple Story Structure or The One-Year Novelist, A Week-by-Week Guide to Writing Your Novel in One Year under my clever nonfiction pen name L.M. Lily. You can get both of those wherever you buy audiobooks or ask your library to order them for you. You can get them in book form also from the library in paperback, hardback, or large print editions, or you can get the ebook edition. Links in the show notes and at writingasasecondcareer.com. Look at the menu item books on writing. Giles stands inside the door and just stares at Buffy. Then they walk toward each other slowly and hug. And Giles says, oh God, Buffy, you're alive. You're here. And you're still remarkably strong. Buffy says, huh? Oh, sorry. He tells her that she is and she fills in a miracle. And Giles says, yes, but then I always thought so. I love this moment between them. It feels authentic. And the scene cuts to the demon walking the Sunnydale streets in the dark, growling. 
Back with Giles and Buffy in the training room, she asks him how England was, and Giles says he isn't sure how to answer. He arrived, he met with the council, and Buffy interjects, always a good time. Giles goes on that otherwise he has nothing to report. He keeps a flat in Bath, and he met a few old friends, and continues almost made a new one, which I think is statistically impossible for a man my age. And Buffy says, and now you're back. And Giles says, yes. And Buffy responds, wow, Giles, are you miserable about it or just really British? And Giles says, I can't lie to you, Buffy. Leaving Sunnydale was uh, difficult and uh, coming back is, and Buffy says, I'm guessing the word is inconvenient. And Giles responds, no, bewildering. This exchange has always puzzled me. It feels like one of two things, either false conflict, which is where two characters, if they just talked openly, could resolve this conflict. And it's false when that happens and there's no reason that the characters are holding back. Or this could be an issue of character. Either we don't have enough to understand what's going on in Giles' head, or he is just being written out of character to suit the plot. When Giles says, I can't lie to you, Buffy, that strongly implies that he's about to say something that is going to hurt her feelings, that he doesn't want to tell her. And that just doesn't, to me, fit Giles, if what he's really concerned about, because their next lines will suggest he's bewildered because he's worried about Buffy, there's no reason that he would say, I can't lie to you, Buffy. He'd just say, leaving Sunnydale was difficult, and I'm thrilled that you're back, but I'm concerned about you. But instead, he makes it sound like he really didn't want to come back. He was having a great time in England, and maybe he was. He did a lot in what I think was a very short time period but it it gives this impression that oh he was picking up his life again and now as Buffy says it's inconvenient to come back and even though he contradicts that uh, and says no if I were Buffy I would think what she does that it's it's really a pain for him to come back and I also am left as a viewer feeling once I watch the whole episode that this is done to set up things that happen later not because this is really how Giles would act. Giles studies Buffy and asks how she really is. She looks tired. Buffy claims she's fine. She admits that sleeping is hard because of the whole waking up in a box thing. And then there are the dreams. And it's unclear why she doesn't tell him the truth about where she was. And that seems out of character as well because she has told him things in the past. She told him Dawn was the key and they agreed not to tell the others. So most likely she could tell Giles and if she didn't want him to, he wouldn't tell the others. Also, the reasons for her not telling her friends, which mainly seem to be she doesn't want them to feel bad about bringing her back, don't apply to Giles. He isn't one of the ones who did the spell. And the reason she doesn't tell Dawn, the need to protect Dawn from knowing that, also doesn't apply to Giles. So this too feels like false conflict. Giles says she's doing remarkably well under the circumstances. He's proud of her. Buffy says Willow brought her back she just lay there 
He says she knows what he meant, and she responds, it was just a little post-post-mortem comedy. Then she says she better start prepping for slayage, and he says there's always that, and Buffy says seems that way. And she looks almost like she's near tears as she wraps her hands to get ready for the punching bag again. Giles goes into the shop. Anya hugs him, tells him he can't have the store back, and he agrees. The others show Giles the drawing. He says the demon is mm fashionic, Dawn's pronunciation, which makes her happy. And it's a mercenary demon. The question is, what's out there powerful enough to control it? And at 21 minutes, one second, the demon crashes into a room and yells that they had a deal. They got what they wanted. Now they need to give him what he wants, the head of the slayer. So this question Giles raised is answered And we're at the middle of the episode, and there is a reversal here for Buffy, though she's not aware of it. Because those who summon the demon agree they will give him the head of the slayer, although they're somewhat muted about it. We see these three teenage boys there, or I guess maybe maybe they're 20 now, on beanbag chairs. There's Warren, who we met in the robot episode. He's the one who created April. There's Jonathan, who we saw throughout the show, and another guy, Andrew, who we don't know yet, and a video game is on a large screen behind them. And in response to the demon, Warren says, okay. Jonathan says, sure. And Andrew says, we can do that. Generally in an episode midpoint, we see the protagonist suffer a major reversal, make a major commitment, or both. This is a reversal. It's unclear if it's major because I don't know that these three guys at this moment add much to the threat to Buffy. If the demon wanted to go after her, presumably it would, though we'll find out he doesn't know where to find her. If the demon plot were the main focus of the episode, I suspect this turn would come more like a quarter of the way through where we would find out who was behind the demon. On return from the commercial, the demon says the three told him they were powerful, commanding magics and demon realms. And they laugh evil laughs and say they're like supervillains. He demands to know which is the leader. Each of the boys says that he is until the demon says he'll kill the leader. And the other two point to Jonathan, who says that's not fair. It's not their fault the Slayer was at the bank. They said they'd pay the demon and they will. And the others pretend to worship Jonathan. Crouching down, bowing down next to him, the demon grabs him by the throat and says he must kill him because he pitted the demon against the Slayer. They can't pay him off in paper bills. And then he says once he kills Jonathan, he'll beat his subjects to death. So now the other two who were giggling away are worried. This raises one of my first questions about the trio. Do Warren and Andrew get that the demon threat is real? It, it looks like the demon's pretty serious. He lifts Jonathan by the throat off the ground. He's very big, very strong. And it's not clear if they are ready to let their friend get killed or if they're just so lost in their fantasy world that it's like a video game to them and they don't really grasp the danger. 
It seems like they do, though, because when he says he'll kill them next, now they're concerned. This confusion over the trio, on the one hand, it could be a story question for the audience. Nothing says you've got to explain everything right away. You would slow your scenes if you did, and you want the audience to wonder about things and keep watching. The challenge here is we're not invested as an audience in these characters, maybe minimally in Jonathan. There's probably a reason that he is the one in peril here so that the audience does feel something. But I don't care about Warren or Andrew. This is also part of the problem with cartoon-like villains, which, which these guys are clearly written to be. Buffy's villains are sometimes over the top, but typically they have depth and layers. They're, they're not just mustache-twirling villains. And while Buffy has always had humor and a, a sort of irreverent tone, the villains usually are funny in a different sort of way. They're, they're not comical, so comical that we almost don't take them seriously. If you make your villains too cartoony and go too much for comic relief, it can leave the audience not caring. Warren tells the demon if he lets them live, they can give him all sorts of things. Jonathan offers a spell to make him look super cool to the other demons hearkening back to Superstar. Warren offers a robot girlfriend. Good, quick exposition through conflict because it reminds us who both of them are. And now we find out a bit about who Andrew is, also in a fun way through conflict, because he and Warren start arguing. Andrew tells Warren to shut up and Warren taunts him. What will he do? Train devil dogs to ruin the prom? And Andrew says, that wasn't me. How many times do I have to say it? The prom thing was my lame brother, Tucker. This ties Andrew as well to previous Buffy lore. And the trio giggles over how Andrew sent flying demon monkeys to ruin the school play. The demon, though, has had enough of these three, and he roars. All he wants is the Slayer dead. They tell him they need to confer to figure out the best way to do that, and the demon says make sure it involves pain. We cut back to... Buffy and Giles now at the Summer's house, and Buffy shows Giles pillows and sheets with cartoon characters on them. Perhaps a reference to the cartoony trio in an indirect way, and Buffy says, I know they're so cute you could die. Giles reassures her they're whimsical. Buffy couldn't find the guest sheets. Her mom always did those things. They put the sheets over the sofa, and Buffy tells them they need a pullout sofa, the kind with no payments until 2000 and infinity. Buffy explains about the money squandered on luxuries like food and clothing while she was dead, and tells him Anya says it's pretty bad, but Buffy's trying not to think about it until she wakes up at 4 a.m. terrified. This is where the realism of these problems intrudes again for me, because on each watch, I think, well, do they really have to keep this big house Buffy's back now? Could they sell it? And Buffy and Dawn could live in somewhere smaller, and Willow and Tara could live in the dorms again. Also, I think, are Willow and Tara chipping in for expenses? I get that they are helping take care of Dawn, but probably they were paying a lot for room and board. So is a little bit of that going to the Summers household, or are they living there and Buffy has to pay for everybody? 
I'm thinking about that now and not about the story. Giles tells Buffy she's putting too much pressure on herself after returning from some unknown level of hell. But he promises they'll go through the bills together tomorrow and work it out. And Buffy says she's glad he's back. He says he's glad she is too and reaches over to touch her arm, but she gets up and walks away before he can. At 26 minutes, 22 seconds, we're back with Jonathan, Andrew, and Warren. Jonathan and Andrew argue they don't want to kill Buffy. She saved Jonathan's life a bunch of times, and she's hot. Warren argues it's her or them, and he says it's his mom's house. What he says goes, but they say they can get in trouble for murder, and they don't know if they could kill Buffy. This goes to a problem with the demon that is a bit similar to the last episode in that this demon is not terribly active. Yes, he broke into the bank, but since then we've seen him walk around Sunnydale and we'll see him walk around or we'll find out he walks around Sunnydale some more. And now though he threatened these guys, he is just standing and waiting while they argue. It makes the demon plot feel very slow, especially because so much else happens while the demon is either standing around or later walking to Buffy's house. Jonathan and Andrew also argue they didn't team up to kill people. They had one clear mission statement. And we get a quick flashback to the three of them playing a game and drinking soda. And Warren says, you guys want to team up and take over Sunnydale? And both say, okay. In the present, Jonathan says he signed up for, quote, shrink rays, train gorillas, workable prototype jetpacks, and chicks, 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 unquote. And he points to their whiteboard, which has a slightly different list, but pretty close. And it says to do, colon, control the weather, miniaturize Fort Knox, conjure fake IDs, shrink ray, girls, girls, the gorilla thing. Jonathan and Andrew agree murder is not on the list. They call a vote. Who's for not killing Buffy? Jonathan and Andrew immediately raise their hands. Warren finally sheepishly half raises his. But he gets an idea, tells them wait there. Then he takes the demon aside, hands it a piece of paper. This has the slayer's name, address, and phone number on it and says, quote, you want a killer? Make it so. Close quote. At 27 minutes, 48 seconds, the demon takes the piece of paper and leaves. Jonathan and Andrew look at Warren in awe, and Andrew asks if he's some kind of Jedi. And Warren says the Force can sometimes have great power over a weak mind. At 28 minutes, 20 seconds, Giles walks into the kitchen. Willow asks if he had a good talk with Buffy, and he asks her about the spell. Unlike the scene with Buffy and Giles in the training room, this scene is based in both their characters and the conflict arises out of it. And I find it authentic and engaging. Willow's very excited to tell Giles about the spell and she's a bit playfully dramatic about it. And I buy that she takes this tone because things seem pretty okay to her for now. Buffy at least seems a little more like herself. She recognizes Buffy's not exhibiting a full range of emotions, but she's certainly much better than when she first came back. I think if Giles had talked to Willow the day after the spell, 
or during the events of afterlife, Willow would have had a much more serious tone and she might have acknowledged her fears about the spell and her concerns and the whole conversation might have gone somewhat differently. They could have had uh, some sort of meeting in the minds. As it is, Willow is eating cookies as she tells him it was so scary and she puts her hand over her eyes and peeks through her fingers saying the Blair Witch would have had to watch like that. And a giant snake came out of her mouth and all this energy crackling and a pack of demons interrupted but she totally kept it together and she finishes and then the next thing you know, Buffy. And she's clearly proud, and Giles says, you're a very stupid girl. And Willow says, what? Giles? And she looks so taken aback, so surprised at this reaction, and so disappointed. I feel like Willow was waiting to share this with someone who really got how amazing it was. But Giles asks her if she has any idea the powers that she harnessed and the line she crossed. And Willow says, I thought you'd be impressed or something. Giles then says of everyone, he trusted her the most to respect the forces of nature. Giles tells Willow to think about what she's done to Buffy. She brought her back, but at an incredible risk. And Willow says, risk of what? Making her deader? And Giles responds of killing us all, unleashing hell on earth. I mean, shall I go on? He stands near the kitchen sink through most of this, and the window over it is open. Willow tells him she did what she had to do, what no one else could. And Giles tells her there are others in the world who can do what you did. You just don't want to meet them. Willow says, no, probably not. But well, they're the bad guys. I'm not a bad guy. I brought Buffy back into this world. And maybe the word you should be looking for is congratulations. Giles says, having Buffy back in this world makes me feel indescribably wonderful. But I wouldn't congratulate you if you jumped off a cliff and happened to survive. And Willow says, that's not what I did, Giles. And Giles says, you were lucky. And Willow says, I wasn't lucky. I was amazing. And how would you know you weren't even there? I love the many levels of this. From Willow's point of view, she did accomplish something amazing. I mean, from anyone's point of view. And there is layered in that inherent conflict. Mentor-mentee, older, experienced person to someone who's relatively new. And he's saying, you were lucky. And she's angry because it wasn't just luck. She did all these preparations. I'm sure she studied. She feels she was very careful. And this came out well, and instead of applauding how well she did, Giles is acting like she was just lucky. At the same time, Giles, with his experience, is much more aware of how badly it could have gone. And as the audience, we don't know how much luck was involved. Did she get Buffy back without world-ending consequences because she's so skilled? Or was it luck? And Giles has good reason for his fears. He knows from experience from his youth how dangerous spells can be in the Dark Age. Not only was one of his friends killed because of the spell when Giles was young, the other friends were killed in the present day when the demon Igon came back. So he is so aware of the danger of inexperience and is so worried that Willow will continue this and that she does not grasp this. 
to Willow saying, well, you weren't here. Giles says, if I had been, I'd have bloody well stopped you. The magics you channeled are more ferocious and primal than anything you can hope to understand. And you are lucky to be alive, you rank arrogant amateur. And he slams his hand on the counter. This is the part that I think might have gone differently had Willow's tone been different because Giles would have conveyed the same message. But I don't think he would have called her a rank arrogant amateur. And that tips Willow over and she says at 30 minutes, 26 seconds, you're right. Giles stops at the door. He's been about to storm out and he turns to look at her and she says, the magics I used are very powerful. I'm very powerful. And maybe it's not such a good idea for you to piss me off. Giles gives her this assessing look, his eyebrows raise just a little, and then he looks down, seeming very sad, and Willow takes a sudden breath and kind of comes back to herself and says, come on, Giles, I don't want to fight. Let's not, okay? I'll, I'll think about what you said, and you try to be happy, Buffy's back. Giles says in a low voice, they still don't know where she was or what happened to her. And he's, quote, far from convinced she's come out of all this undamaged, end quote. There is another layer here I meant to mention, which is that older male in the workplace and the younger woman and the tendency to not get credit for what you have accomplished when you are the young woman. That dynamic is here as well. Willow saying, I am very powerful. There's also some really interesting parallels here between Willow and Jonathan, possibly Andrew. Jonathan also feels he's not a bad guy, even though the trio's aims are evil on any objective level. They want to control people, specifically girls and women, and they want to take over Sunnydale. But he does not see himself as a bad guy. And Willow has some cognitive dissonance here, too. She says she's not the bad guy, but seconds later threatens Giles. She backpedals when it hits her what she said, but it's also clear from the way she continues that she isn't going to think about what Giles said. She is already rejected what he said. As Giles says those last lines, the scene shifts to Buffy standing on the back steps alone. So she's near that open window. A cigarette butt drops at her feet. She grinds it out and says, hello, Spike. If you have thought about checking out my mystery series, you can get the most recent book, The Hidden Man, free for your Kindle or Kindle app today, Monday, February 27th, through the end of the day, Wednesday, March 1st, 2023. Links are in the show notes, or you can find them at lisalily.com hidden. If you want to know a little more about it, the tagline for the book is, he wants his father's killer found, but his secrets kept. Will hiding the truth make her the next victim? If you're a member of Kindle Unlimited, you can borrow all five of the QC Davis mysteries anytime as part of your subscription. The next book will come out this spring, so it's a great time to catch up. Spike steps from the shadows and asks if she heard all that noise. She says just enough to feel crappy. Spike tells her Watcher Boy didn't mean any of it, and Buffy says, I guess. 
We don't know if once again, Buffy only caught part of the conversation. This is a device the show has used a number of times where someone eavesdrops and only hears the worst possible part. If that is the case, I would find that extremely frustrating. But I think she may have heard all of it because she continues that everyone cares so much and it makes it harder for her. Spike says, I'm not sure I followed you around that bend, love. And Buffy says, I just, I feel like I'm spending all my time trying to be okay so they don't worry. It's exhausting. This resonated with me personally because I remember feeling to some extent this way in the year after my parents were killed because sometimes when people asked how I was, I could tell they so needed me to be fine while my dad was still recovering or trying to recover because ultimately he couldn't. Uh, Someone at work, very nice person, asked how he was doing and I said, oh, it's really hard. And I explained about his most recent surgery and the fact that he wasn't able to eat and and I hope I didn't pile on too much, but at the end she said, so he's basically going to be okay. And I thought, all right, there's no way you could draw that from what I said, but clearly this person needed me to say that and to say that I was all right. And that can be so exhausting. It's a lot of extra work to constantly have to reassure people that you are okay. And here for Buffy, I feel like that would be even more so because it isn't only out of concern for her or out of difficulty sitting with someone else's pain, it's because they feel guilty, at least when it comes to her friends, not so much Giles, which is also uh, not to beat a dead demon, but another reason that I struggle with why Buffy doesn't just tell Giles, because that concern from Giles really seems more akin to Spike's. Giles isn't asking Buffy for anything. He's not asking her to be okay, and he is just concerned. But nonetheless, she behaves toward him as if he were like the friends, one of the people trying to bring her back. Spike steps over next to Buffy and jokingly asks if she wants him to take them all out. It'd give him a hell of a headache, but he could probably thin the herd a little. Buffy half laughs, the most that we've seen from her since she came back, and Spike says, knew I could get a grin. They sit on the steps together, and Buffy asks why he's always around when she's miserable. He reckons it's when she's alone, and he's not one for crowds these days, and Buffy says, me neither. And Spike says that works out nicely then. This is the same spot they sat more than once to talk about Joyce. Buffy says to Spike now, so what do you know about finances? And I love that last line because it shows more than anything else, I think, that they are becoming friends. It's unlikely Spike can help with this, but she actually asks him. Somewhere around here in the episode, we should see the last major plot turn, the three-quarter turn, which usually grows from the midpoint and takes the story in yet another new direction. I don't see that here in terms of this uh, Buffy household bills emotional plot. The Willow-Giles confrontation certainly is an emotional scene. It keeps the story moving and Buffy does hear it, but that doesn't change the story arc. And the Buffy Spike conversation is more of an ongoing thread. It doesn't change this 
episode. At 33 minutes 42 seconds, so a bit past a quarter way, we do get a turn in the demon plot and it segues very quickly into the climax of that plot. I don't know that it exactly turns the story because the demon already planned to come after Buffy. Dawn in her pajamas comes downstairs. She can't sleep. Giles still adjusting to the time change can't either. He agrees to join Dawn in the kitchen where she's going to experiment with putting different kinds of cereals in a bowl together. The demon bursts in. Dawn's knocked to the floor. He punches Giles, who is knocked out. And the demon stands over Dawn and says, you're not the slayer, but you'll do for a start. Dawn screams. We cut to a commercial. We come back on Dawn still screaming. Buffy wearing the same clothes that she was while outside. So maybe she was still outside with Spike grabs the demon she says you're paying for that door buddy because he broke down the door and she throws him but he lands on the coffee table smashing it and she says oh table the mm fashionic demon now smashes a lamp and says you cost me slayer and buffy says i cost you that's a designer lamp There's a pretty fun fight scene. At one point, Buffy catches a glass vase and carefully puts it back on the mantle before attacking again. Spike joins the fight and she tells him, no, not in the living room. She wants the demon in the kitchen and Spike gets him there. So now we are at the climax where the opposing forces have their final clash and resolve the confrontation or the conflict. And this happens for Buffy and the demon. She grabs it, yells to Spike to open the basement door, which he does. She gets the demon down into the water in the basement and finishes the fight there. The demon breaks one of the pipes. She yells no, and that is it. She beats him with the pipe, probably long past when he's dead, saying full copper repipe, no more full copper repipe. She throws the pipe down, looking disgusted, though the demon is dead, and glances up with a discouraged expression that deepens as she stares in exhaustion at water pouring from the point where the demon broke the pipe. Spike peers down the stairs and says, oh, Did you know this place was flooded? Now we're in the falling action part of the demon plot. This is the part of the story where the writers tie up loose ends and resolve subplots. There's a little bit of a meta reference here in Warren's dialogue. At 36 minutes, 12 seconds, the trio sets up new toys they bought, including a flamethrower and a periscope. And there are bills still on the floor, so they haven't spent all the money. And Warren says, I think we've got a lot to feel good about. We've got money, the lair, and our one loose end has been taken care of by the slayer. Flamethrowers up. So a fun little reference to loose ends, and this is the falling action. So from their perspective, that's all the demon was. Andrew says, Periscope's working. Looks like your mom's weeding tulips again. Jonathan says, action figures fully deployed. Andrew can't believe they got away with it. And they talk about how they can do anything. Andrew suggests they can stay up all night if they want. Warren tells him not to get all crazy. Jonathan asks what they'll do about Buffy. Eventually, she'll come after them. Andrew says, bring it on. And they talk about how they could hypnotize her and make her their, quote, willing sex bunny, unquote. And they all giggle, including Jonathan, who puts hypnotize Buffy on the list. 
Jonathan in this episode is consistent with how he was in the past. He has that same mix of wanting things to happen all at once with one big gesture, as Buffy pointed out, and sometimes with magic the way he did in Superstar and not thinking about the harm. In fact, beyond that, he thinks that people will like him in Superstar. He wants friends, so he uses a spell and doesn't get why people are angry about that. And now he wants sex. He wants girls to want sex with him. And he's willing to use magic. He's excited about the idea, ignoring completely or maybe not seeing, willfully not seeing the contradiction in, quote, willing sex bunny, end quote, and hypnotizing someone. Warren, based on the robot episode, it, he, he almost certainly gets that. He, he gets it's not willing. Andrew, we don't know. They joke about having everything they always wanted and how they didn't have to earn it. And Jonathan does grasp that part because he philosophizes that life is like an interstellar journey. Some people take long journeys at sublight speeds and only get where they're going after years of toil, where the trio blasts through the space-time continuum in a wormhole, and crime is that wormhole. Andrew says, but everyone knows if the width of a wormhole cavity is a whole number of wavelengths, plus a fraction of that wavelength, the coinciding particle activity collapses the infrastructure. Warren interrupts, he's wearing virtual reality glasses, and says, dude, don't be a geek. Now we'll get to a sort of climax for the plot about Buffy and the flooded basement and the household bills. And the fact that I say sort of highlights the challenges with an antagonist that is amorphous or is more of an idea or a force. Because what is the antagonist in that plot? If you're going to have an antagonist like society or life, you need to find characters who can act for or represent that antagonist. In my book, How to Write a Novel for grades six through eight, so it's for middle school kids, I looked at the book The Giver, and there I saw society as the antagonist, and there were certain characters who acted for society and pushed back very strongly against the protagonist who was starting to step out of line. Here, it's a lot more amorphous. To a very small extent, there's Tito the plumber who gives that estimate. The loan officer pushes back more against Buffy. Willow, she is the one delivering some of the bad news, but she's certainly reluctant to do that. And Anya gives more of the bad news, but she's also offering advice. It's advice Buffy doesn't want to take, but it's there. And none of these feels particularly strong. And part of the problem is exactly what Buffy says. It's it's a bunch of bureaucrats sending paper and that doesn't make for a strong antagonist. Despite that, all of this does have a huge effect on Buffy. At 38 minutes, she's in the living room, leaning on her elbow at the side of a small desk. Her head is in her hands as Anya tells her the estimate of her, quote, spanking new debt, unquote, after the repipe and the other fixes that are needed. And Buffy says she trashed the house so many times. How did her mom pay for it? Xander says maybe by buying cheap furniture, and he gives up trying to fix the coffee table. Anya says there's 
always that charging option. And Buffy says she will, quote, definitely, probably not be doing that, end quote. Giles comes into the room. He looks a bit beat up. The others take out the lamp and table pieces as Giles sits with Buffy and she says, I don't think I can do this. Giles reassures her that she can. Her mother handled these things all the time, one crisis at a time, quote, without the aid of any superpowers, end quote, and tells her she can get through it too. This is another one of those points where real life distracts me from the story because this in no way is helpful advice if we're talking about a real life situation. Uh, Joyce didn't have superpowers, but slaying superpowers, as the episode makes clear, don't help Buffy here. What Joyce had was a job, maybe homeowner's insurance, some life experience and no slang to do. So this is another reason that trying to deal with real issues, real life issues, causes problems here. Like, yeah, this is a real problem Buffy has, but Giles is not offering anything helpful here. And it's presented as if he is, as if this should be reassuring to Buffy. The phone rings and Buffy, again, funny, says, who's calling me? Everyone I know lives here. She leaves to go get it. Dawn guesses it's creditors and the hounding has begun and asks Giles if they'll starve. And she says, no chance I'd have to quit school to work assembling cheap toys in a poorly ventilated sweatshop. And Giles says, poorly ventilated, what have you been reading? Buffy heads for the front door and Giles asks, what was it? And she says it was Angel and he heard she's back. She has to go see him. Giles wants to get the bills done first, but Buffy says, I have to go now. She turns toward the door, takes a few steps and then turns back and says, oh, uh, thanks for taking care of this for me. And as in the last episode, she walks out without saying anything to Dawn. Certainly Giles is not going to let anything happen to Dawn, but Buffy doesn't even acknowledge that she's leaving Dawn. Giles and Dawn exchange a look and they both look so defeated and the episode ends. The conflict in this scene mostly works for me. Buffy wanting to see Angel right away really fits her character, Angel was there for her when Joyce died. It makes sense she'd want to go see him. And I don't think Giles would find that odd or that he does. And I also see why she wants to go now. The lack of concern for Dawn and the assumption that he'll just, Giles will just take care of things without even asking him is what worries Giles and worries Dawn. And that makes sense because in season five, Buffy wouldn't even leave Dawn to go on that spirit quest until Dawn reassured her and kind of insisted she do it. And now she's just walking off. So it tells him a lot about where Buffy's at. The other thing about this episode as a whole is it made me start thinking about is this an entire story structure shift that we'll see throughout season six? Because in this episode and the last, actually in all four of these episodes, the demon fighting action plots have sat within the larger ongoing story about Buffy's return. So we see major plot turns for those action plots. They're in the right order, but they are at different 
points than we would usually find them. And sometimes we skip them. As with the demon plot here, we've got a story spark that also kind of serves as the one quarter turn here. We have the last major turn where the demon arrives at Buffy's, but it almost immediately segues into the climax. So it's kind of a compressed plot. And that leaves room for the bigger arc of season six in Buffy's return in these episodes. There is also here a full story for Buffy about dealing with her emotions. It's it's one that doesn't go a direction we'd like to see for Buffy because she starts out, though overwhelmed about the flooded basement, somewhat more hopeful and upbeat, little more like herself. And then as things pile on, the bills pile on. She overhears Giles' conversation with Willow. The demon comes and causes more chaos and Buffy is more and more overwhelmed. Her arc is towards she can't handle this from believing that she can in the beginning, it resolves when she abdicates all responsibility and leaves. Now she'll be back, but her line, thanks for taking care of this for me, says, I'm just not going to do this. You do it. Very understandable for where she's at, but it is a resolution and it is a story arc. So there is an overarching emotional plot here. That's it for the breakdown of this episode, other than foreshadowing, which also includes quite a bit. If you find the way I address plot and story helpful and want to try it for your own writing, in addition to or instead of the audiobooks, you can download free story structure worksheets at writingasasecondcareer.com slash worksheets. If you're not staying for foreshadowing and spoilers, thank you so much for listening. Come back in two weeks for season six, episode five, Life Serial, where the trio uses magic to test Buffy over and over and over again. So this episode sets up a lot for later in the season. We have another gun reference, Buffy specifically saying these things, never helpful, foreshadowing Warren killing Tara with a gunshot and Buffy getting shot. And even that moment when she flings it aside and it goes off in this episode foreshadows that Warren is going to shoot at Buffy and the shot to Tara is accidental in the sense of he didn't mean to kill Tara. So setting the stage for how guns work. Xander still getting used to the miracle of the steady paycheck, getting out of his parents' house, foreshadows him leaving Anya at the altar and also why he does it. In that episode, it is his fear that he will repeat his parents' life, his parents' marriage, that he'll end up hurting Anya much worse, perhaps killing Anya, if he marries her. That's what stops him from getting married. So in a way, he does not get out of his parents' house. He is stuck there. The most obvious foreshadowing here is of Dark Willow. Willow will get more and more powerful and her lines, the crossing of lines will continue. And this good guys, bad guys distinction that she makes will become fuzzier and fuzzier because yes, her intention here to bring Buffy back is one 
that everyone would agree is a good intention, but she goes beyond to doing spells that could be quite dangerous for much less obviously good goals or where the balance is not as clear. Like in the episode where she's going to shift everyone into another dimension to see if Dawn is at the bronze. Yes, it's important to find Dawn, but the risk-benefit ratio is is one that pretty much everyone in the show would say, no, not worth it. Just go and look for Dawn in uh, the old-fashioned way. And certainly the parallels to the trio who are amassing power are going to continue. They are moving much more quickly toward evil ends. They're starting with evil ends, unlike Willow. But that does foreshadow certain parallels there in the journeys these characters will take and the danger of power. Warren's comment about the Force having great power over weak minds is practically a summary of what will happen with his influence over the other two. They don't start out in a great place. Jonathan is not a great person. He has some redeeming qualities. He's written so that we uh, usually have some sympathy for him. But without Warren, perhaps he would have gone a different direction. And even Andrew, maybe if we go into season seven, might have become a different person. But Warren's influence is so strong. And in a lot of ways, they are shown as being weak-minded, susceptible to that influence and also choosing to go along with him. They are hiding things from themselves, or at least Jonathan is. He is just not looking at a lot of things. But we will see more of this, how Warren manipulates the other two. And we will see more of this dissonance in how this trio is portrayed. The show treats them both as comic relief and as a serious danger to me too much as comic relief and I'm never certain what the writers are trying to do are we supposed to laugh at the trio are they supposed to be comic relief and are they supposed to be more engaging I suspect the last one the answer to that is yes they are supposed to be more engaging This at least foreshadows my struggles with that part of it. There is much more foreshadowed here, though, than I realized in this introduction of them. For instance, I had completely forgotten that there was any reference to hypnotizing Buffy or creating a willing sex bunny, which foreshadows dead things where they hypnotize Warren's ex-girlfriend Katrina to force her to have sex with them. And Jonathan, fitting his attitude here, is shocked when Katrina tells him it's rape and then it does lead to murder the line that Andrew and Jonathan are trying to draw here as if their other things are okay and murder is not and they don't seem to grasp at least Jonathan doesn't that it is a difference only in degree not in kind and interestingly Warren gets that because when they say something about well you can get in trouble for murder he points out you can get in trouble for bank robbery too this makes me think the writers are being purposeful in treating them as comic relief leading us to believe that they are going to be easily defeated and we don't have to take them that seriously and then dead things shows that they are a great 
danger and shows the danger of laughing off these types of things of saying oh it's just boys will be boys so I'm looking forward to much as I'm not a huge fan of the trio to exploring that further so that's it for this episode thank you again for listening and a special thank you to patrons who support the show please come back in two weeks for Season 6, Episode 5, Life Serial, where Buffy tries to find a job and get stuck in a magical loop that her friends don't understand. You can find back episodes of the podcast on YouTube or at lisalilly.com, where you can also find my mysteries and thrillers and the Buffy in the Art of Story books. If you'd like to connect or share your thoughts about Buffy, you can find me on Twitter or Instagram at Lisa M. Lilly, that's L-I-S-A-L-I-L-L-Y, or email me at buffystorypod at gmail.com. Music for this episode was written and performed by Robert Newcastle. Buffy and the Art of Story is a production of Spiny Woman, LLC, copyright 2023. All rights reserved.